about history from a whole new context. Welcome to Podtextualizing the Past. Hi, I'm Sue Stanfield with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. And today we're going to discuss the war with the Dakota in 1862 that took place in Minnesota. I'm so very happy to have the opportunity to interview John Lake, a PhD candidate at George Mason University. John has studied the Dakota extensively for years, and his master's degree focused on the war and historical memory. He has a book chapter that will be published soon on the Oregon Trail video game, an old school game that certainly inspired many people to study history. Welcome, John. I'm so happy to have the chance to talk with you. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk about one of my favorite historical topics. So I guess to begin with, um, Native American history is often neglected in our classes, particularly the early survey, you know, U.S. survey courses. And the Dakota War in particular, you know, because I think it takes place during the U.S. Civil War, is particularly neglected. And um I was wondering if you could explain to us a little bit about how the conflict began. Um, you know, were there early treaties that created some sort of relationship between the U.S. and the Dakota? Yeah, so just broadly speaking, right out the gate, the U.S. Civil Wars happening in the mid-1860s, 1861 to 65. And generally, when people you know talk about this conflict, it's focused mainly in the East in Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, they might talk about this Trans-Mississippi Theater in uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, you know, these more Western states closer to the Mississippi River. But during the conflict, there's a lot more happening throughout the whole continent of North America and in the United States, um, particularly with the Western expansion of uh, federal power and this attempted expansion of the uh, institution of slavery. And so as this is happening, primarily through a lot of these larger measures set in place by the United States government, such as the Homestead Act, where Western settlers are kind of moving onto these open landscapes that the government's taken from indigenous people, uh, they're coming into more conflict with Native Americans. So in 1862, the U.S. Dakota War happens, um, but it's not just out of nowhere. It doesn't just happen um, by, you know, this immediate conflict between white settlers and Native Americans. Um, There's this long trajectory, this expansion of, you know, interaction between uh, the U.S. government and Native Americans in in what would become Minnesota. Um, But primarily leading up to the U.S.-Dakota War, there's these two major treaties that take place in 1851, uh, the Treaty of Traverse de Sioux and the Treaty of Mendota. And primarily what this did was it ceded thousands of acres, millions of acres actually, of Dakota homeland um, to the federal government for the price tag of around $1.6, $1.7 million. That's about seven and a half cents an acre um, where the government promises to pay these uh, Santee Dakota. And Santee is the name of the Eastern Dakota that are primarily in Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, Iowa, um, up into Canada. Uh, There's other sections of the Dakota that are further west, but primarily the Dakota War in Minnesota 
happens between Santee, Dakota, and white settlers in the U.S. Army. So Treaty of Traverse de Sioux and Mendota, uh, the Dakota relinquished millions of acres of land for this um, sum of, you know, over a million dollars. And they're promised to give these annuity payments by the government every June until it's paid in full. And so what happens is the government's starting to pay on time. They're getting these annuity payments of, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars every year that helps the Dakota people survive. They're able to buy supplies from local Indian agents, traders. And what happens is the time gets closer to the U.S. Civil War. The government has these larger things happening at the same time and probably out of care for this Native Native American treaty that was signed, uh, these annuity payments take longer and longer to get to these Dakota communities. And so as these annuity payments start to become tardy, the Dakota people are starving. There's this long period where they're accruing all this debt with Indian agents and traders um, because they cannot afford to pay for food or supplies. And so they're building up all this debt. And so what happens, especially as we get closer to the Civil War, the U.S. government is paying these annuity payments directly to the Indian agents who pay off the debt to the, uh, the traders and whoever loaned money or supplies to these Dakota communities, which means that the Dakota are further not getting as much money as promised. And so one of the most famous lines of the history of the U.S. Dakota War is in this period of starvation where Dakota people are physically suffering from not having food and supplies was one of the Indian agents, Andrew Myrick, was famously told a group of Dakota, if they're that hungry, then let them eat grass or their own dung, which is like this really powerful moment in Dakota War history that shows us that, you know, these white Indian agents or people living in this Midwest area aren't really interested in helping indigenous people. And the irony of all this is later in the Dakota War, supposedly Andrew Myrick's body was found dead and his mouth was stuffed with grass. Uh, so is it kind of like a, a company town or something where um, the Dakota purchase things from the Indian agents or do they just borrow the money? So one thing that I forgot to mention was in the signing of these treaties, the Dakota were forced to move on to two different reservations along the Minnesota River, which is further west from where a lot of the white settlements were kind of growing at the time. And so they lived on these reservations, and there was these Indian agents that kind of worked as intermediaries between them and the government. And I'm pretty sure that they would purchase supplies through the traders that worked with Indian agents, um, and they would be delivered. Um, That's something that I have to do a little bit more research into, this relationship between the Indian agents and getting supplies. Um, But I know that as they're put onto the reservations and as more white settlers are moving onto their homeland, they're running out of opportunities to fish and hunt. Bison are kind of moving in different directions White settlers are hunting and, you know, turning their lands into farming land. Um, And so there's drastic change to the landscapes, also like prohibiting them access to a lot of the food supplies that they previously, you know, had easy access to get. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So it's it's a combination of factors, both 
dealing with the the traders, but also this immigration of white um, settlers coming in and changing the landscape by farming and other things. Okay. Um, well, so things, you know, obviously begin to escalate during the war, as you said, because the U.S. government is is falling behind on on payments. Could you kind of walk us through a, a quick timeline of what happens in, in 1862 to get us to the war? Yeah. So as Dakota people are starving, you know, a, f- a few younger Dakota men, as a lot did at the time, they went out searching for food in late in, well, as mid-August, around August 17th, a group of young Dakota hunters went out searching for food to bring back to their communities. And they arrived at um, the homestead of, of a white settler family in Acton, Minnesota. And there's a lot of skepticism on what exactly happened at this farm. I've heard a few different stories, one being that the Dakota men kind of were placing a bet on who could, you know, steal some eggs from their farmhouse. Um, And they joked about killing the white family in doing that theft. Um, So what happens is they they do attack this homestead, um, which kind of sparks this intense, uh, traumatic moment in the Minnesota River Valley. And so what happens is Little Crow, who is the, the leader of the Metawonkaton, Dakota, who's a smaller group, a band inside of the Santee, um, he hears word of this attack. And for the longest time, he did not want any violence between the Dakota and the government. He was fighting for peace. Um, but what happens is after this attack, he realizes that war's imminent. And so they decide to go on the offensive. And so for the next six weeks at various places throughout the Minnesota River Valley, which is in geographically in south central Minnesota, um, there's various skirmishes and attacks and, and battles that, that, that take place. And so what really like amplifies this war is by the end of August, early September, the U.S. Army really gets involved. Um, Major General John Pope, who was the former U.S. General for the Army of the Potomac, fighting against Robert E. Lee in the East, um, he's transferred to Minnesota to deal with this after losing the Battle of Second Bull Run. And so when he gets out here, there's more conflict happening. The U.S. Army gets involved. And eventually, by the end of September, at the Battle of Wood Lake, they uh, they overwhelm the Dakota and basically defeat them. And in some of my research on this period, a lot of the Dakota at Wood Lake were being told by their elders that they should surrender. And if they do surrender they'd be treated honorably and they would be able to return to their families. And that was not the case. So what happens is after Wood Lake, there's this series of negotiations with the Dakota because they have prisoners and captives. They, they took a lot of women and children captive. Um, and at, at this place called Camp Release, they kind of negotiate, you know, the return of these captives and the, sur- the formal surrender of the Dakota not everybody surrendered. A lot of the Dakota fighters, including Little Crow and some of the more prominent leaders, uh, they flee west 
into Dakota Territory. And after 1862 into 63 and 64, they are chased down by two federal U.S. Army, they call them punitive expeditions, to basically hunt down these Dakota who fled after the Dakota War. But in Minnesota, what happens is there's around 393 Dakota men that surrender, and it leads to this massive trial. A lot of people call it a kangaroo trial, which is basically a military tribunal set up by white officers that hear, in air quotes, hear the the cases of these 393 men. During this court hearing, if you can call it that, the Dakota men were on trial each for around two minutes on average. Oh, wow. Uh, there was no interpreter for those who didn't know English. So it was basically, if you were a militant, you were guilty by association and you needed to be punished severely. So what happens is they hear the cases of the 303 and they decide that 303 needed to be executed for their actions in fighting in the Dakota War. And so that's kind of the end of the Dakota War proper. Um, There's a lot of skepticism on the exact numbers for how many people died. Um, I've heard between 400 and 800 white settlers died. Um, An unknown amount of Dakota people perished. There was tons of destruction throughout the Minnesota River Valley. One town in particular, New Ulm, which is a very German-based community in uh, this area of Minnesota, 98% of the town was destroyed by two different uh, attacks by the Dakota. Um, There was a whole barricade built between uh, a group of white settler militia and Dakota attackers. There were so many people dead in this battle that they had to leave them in the streets without being buried as they retreated after the Dakota kind of overwhelmed them. Um, But what's really interesting, a little side story, I was doing research in New Ulm, and I visited the August Shell Brewery, famous brewery. Uh, They make local beer. And this is one of the only buildings that the Dakota did not destroy. And there's a reason for that. So during this period of starvation before the Dakota War, August Shell gave supplies to the Dakota. And he gave them food and, you know, farming equipment, things like that, so they could at least survive for a little while. And so when they came and attacked New Ulm, they saved his building, um, which is a cool story. But unfortunately, as we might get into later with the memory stuff, uh, I took a, a tour there and the tour guide, his ancestor had died in the Dakota War. And so he didn't want to talk about it, even though that place was a place of Dakota survival and somebody who supported the Dakota people. Um, So the Dakota War ends in late September. They have this trial, and then they're trying to figure out what to do with the 303 Dakota men that they sentenced to death. So they sentenced them to death. Um, I know they don't execute all of them. Who? How do they step in? What happens? Like, is this something inspired by Lincoln, um, his cabinet, or does the military finally kind of step back and say, maybe, maybe we're doing too much. What, what leads to the, the ex- I know it's the largest mass execution in the nation's history. So how do we get there? Yeah. So what happens is everybody in Minnesota wants 
all 303 Dakota men dead. They want retribution. Because, I mean, if there's upwards of 800 people that, you know, white people that died, that's a significant amount of people. And I can only imagine in that time period, you know, a lot of people knew a lot of people that lived in their community. Um, So Minnesotans want all 303 to be executed. Well, word travels back to D.C. through Major General John Pope and the Governor Alexander Ramsey. And Abraham Lincoln, who at the time is dealing with, you know, not only the Civil War, but he's preparing the Emancipation Proclamation, which for those listening, you know, this document's very important to the Civil War. It's basically, you know, granting freedom to enslaved people in the South. It's this watershed moment in the Civil War and for what came in Reconstruction. Um, So Abraham Lincoln, as he's like thinking of these really important ideas of freedom for African-Americans, he's also like dealing with how do we punish these Native people who killed so many white Americans in Minnesota? He realizes that it's not right to execute all 303. So him and his cabinet go through every trial transcript, which again is not much, but they decide that they're going to execute the worst of the worst. And to decide that, they say, let's look at the Native men who sexually assaulted the white settler women. That is the worst of the worst offender, and those are the people who need to be punished. And as a side note, that's a common trope for how people look at Native Americans. They see them as these, quote, savage people who who are, you know, anti-modern. They sexually assault white women because they're just so savage. Um, and so they use this as an you know, as a reason to execute. Well, in the trial transcripts, there was only maybe two cases of sexual assault reported. So Lincoln said to himself, well, that's not enough. <laughs> you know, we can't kill 303, but two people is not enough to send a message. They want to send a message to the Minnesota people that the federal government's going to support them in their retribution and kind of this healing process after the Dakota War. But it's also sending a message to indigenous people around the region that might know about this Dakota War. And, you know, there was this threat that they may join the fleeing Dakota and kind of embark in this big pan-Indian type conflict against the U.S. Army. So they decide to look at the worst offenders and they come up with 39, 39 of the worst Dakota who engaged in murder of innocent civilians or U.S. Army soldiers, those who just had the worst kind of record in their trial transcript. And so Lincoln decided that 39 Dakota men needed to die, and he decided that was going to happen on December 26, 1862, which is a week before he signs officially the Emancipation Proclamation. So this happens in Mankato, Minnesota, which is a small kind of business town um, if you've watched a little House on the Prairie, uh, you know, Mankato's a very important, like, urban center for the Ingalls to travel to. And I would say that that is a, there's truth to that. In the 1860s, Mankato, there, there's two rivers that converge right at the city. There's a lot of just trading and business happening. Um, it's also the largest city closest to the Dakota War. So it gave people who wanted to come from St. Paul, Minneapolis, or surrounding cities, 
you know, a big enough town for them to come stay, but also gave people who were on the the fringes of, of this, I don't want to say frontier, but this open space where the Dakota War happened, they could also come to the town to watch the execution. So at 10 a.m. on the morning of December 26, uh, there's about 4,000 white settlers in town to watch this execution with around 2,000, maybe 1,500 U.S. soldiers separating them from this massive, large scaffold in the middle of town near the Blue Earth River. Um, Right before the execution, one of the Dakota men was um, taken off the list. He was not going to be executed. They found evidence that you know, showed that he wasn't one of these violent offenders. So it was 38 Dakota men that were executed on that morning. And they were marched up the scaffold steps. Uh, They were all hanged at once. Uh, What's crazy is, even though this was a military execution, they allowed a civilian to serve as the executioner. And the civilian, while he played a prominent role in Minnesota history. He actually signed the state constitution in the late 1850s. He had a family that suffered dearly during the Dakota War. I think his his wife and daughter were taken captive. Maybe one of them died. Um, but they allowed this civilian man to swing the axe and cut the rope, which um, all 38 men dropped at once. And so what happens is after the execution, they remove the bodies They bury them in a mass grave next to the Blue Earth River. And a few days later, um, a bunch of doctors and scientists come and they exhume all the bodies to steal for medical research. And what's crazy is um, one of the doctors, Mayo, who Mm -hmm. his sons would create the Mayo Clinic years later, he took one of these Dakota bodies and it was on display in the Mayo Clinic as late as the 1950s. Not just in their records, it was on display. Wow. And since then, they've repatriated the body and now have started a college scholarship for Dakota students, which is, you know, they're trying to do the right thing there. But it's just crazy to think this execution happens. You think that everything's over and done with, but all of a sudden there's, you know, this this moment where medical professionals are trying to advance this whole racial science phenomenon happening in the 19th century um, by, you know, examining these dead native people. So I know for a long time, um, the way we thought about the Dakota war, um, and I'm saying like a hundred years ago, um, was more based on sort of the white victim and um, almost celebrating the execution of 38 men. Um how have things been memorialized since then? I mean, are we shifting our perspective? So let me first off say that it is still a very contentious historical topic in Minnesota today. First, students don't learn about it or haven't really learned about it in the classroom in their K-12 through education. There's active efforts by the Minnesota government to kind of silence any advocacy to change the memory of the U.S. Dakota War. And the the communities, a lot of the communities are so deeply ingrained in the memory of their ancestors. These are white people that they don't want anything that would go against their beloved memory of their past family. And so in Mankato in particular, that's where a lot of my research has taken me. There's been a lot of memory making in that town. 
And for the most part, for the longest time, it's been centered around this one monument. In the early 20th century, a group of veterans of the Dakota War, but also local celebrities or famous people or, you know, government figures, they banded together to fund this monument. And this is a massive monument, around 8,500 pounds of solid granite taken from a quarry in Minnesota. And all the monument said was, here were hanged 38 Sioux Indians, December 26, 1862. And it was placed around the location of where the hanging took place as a way to remember that moment in time. It wasn't a way to remember the Dakota people that suffered that day or more broadly suffered in the Dakota War. It was a way to celebrate white victory over these hostile natives. There was not much context given, and for the longest time it just sat there near the site of execution. In the 1950s through the 1970s, a lot of protest takes place. Um, This is happening around the time of the Civil Rights Movement, the American Indian Movement, Red Power Movements where Native people are saying we need to be recognized in American society because we've been here longer than anybody else and we've been the most marginalized community. People stole our land. People, you know, place us in the past. They don't consider us living today. And so we're going to make this known. And so in Mankato, a lot of protest happened around this monument. People were pouring red paint to represent blood. They were trying to physically destroy it. But what happened was in the 1970s, the American Indian movement came through the town on their famous Trail of Broken Treaties, and they held a conference at what was then Mankato State College, now today Minnesota State University. And this conference was labeled as an education conference, but its primary goal its primary goal was um, to have a conversation between Native Americans and students. And the Bureau of Indian Affairs showed up and they also participated in these conversations. It was supposed to be this moment for healing and reconciliation and kind of advocacy. Um, and so the leaders of the American Indian movement that were there, all of them in their speeches, which I've heard, recordings of. It's very powerful. They all mention the monument and how bad the monument is. And so one of them at the end of his speech says, I can't promise that the monument will be there tomorrow because they wanted it removed. They were advocating for its removal. And so a few months later, the monument is officially removed from that spot. And let me add that it had been moved a few different times Uh, The Mankato city government said in their reports that this was due to fixing traffic routes and patterns and trying to make space for bigger, wider roads. But I think it was to further put it out of public sight. Right. Um, So they move it after this. Um, It goes from where the the execution was probably at. There's no definite location. Um, it, It ends in the alleyway of a gas station. And by the 1990s, they take the monument, after more contest over it, they take the monument and they put it in a city municipal parking lot and they bury it with sand to really cover it up. You know, this is more than just a contentious thing. The city, like, understood the monument as problematic. So they cover it up. And after more protest over it, 
the monument disappears. And to this day, we don't publicly know where it is. There's speculation that it was given to the Dakota community and they destroyed the monument. Other people say it was thrown into the river and it's somewhere at the bottom of a river. Um, Others say that the city destroyed it, um, but we don't really know. Um, But for the longest time, it was this contention over this hanging monument and what it represented, that it was celebrating the violent death of these Dakota 38, and it didn't really celebrate, you know, their survival. So what happens is in the 1980s, at the 125th anniversary of the Dakota War, this the governor of the state of Minnesota declares it the year of reconciliation, 1987. And this was specifically to rebuild relationships with Dakota and white Minnesotans. Let me add that this didn't include the other indigenous people that lived in the state that people kind of forget about when talking about the Dakota War, but it was primarily for Dakota and white Minnesotans. And so the attempt was to bring this reconciliation between these two communities. And so in Mankato, uh, they developed, built a new monument called the Winter Warrior Monument, which is a Dakota man carved out of granite that is still there today. Uh, that represented this reconciliation. The sad part is I talked to the designer during my thesis research and I asked him like, how did he, you know, design this Dakota man thinking that he would say, Oh, I worked with the Dakota communities, you know, and I had a model that, you know, provided these, you know, the image. No, it was him. He said to me that he dressed himself up as a Dakota man. (laughs) and uh, carved the monument based off his own perception of what is Dakota. Um, So that's a little side story that I found problematic. Um, But reconciliation never really happened there. Um, And when you get closer to the 150th anniversary in 2012, people are still urging for, you know, this healing, you know, recognizing Dakota people especially as the college starts to really build up its presence in the town and there's more discussion on diversity and inclusion and, you know, trying to accept these communities that have been marginalized and how to address the wrongs of past societies. Um, They're really just advocating for a better historical and public memory of the Dakota War. So the same uh, monument builder of Winter Warrior participates in the town in building Reconciliation Park, which is also still there today. And there's a few significant monuments there. There's a large white bison that represents just Dakota community and the importance of that animal to their culture. Um, And then there's a large scroll monument, and the scroll has all of the names of the Dakota men that died near that location um, because it's right near where the hanging took, took place. And the, the guy told me that they're talking about adding another monument that represents um, women and children that suffered during the conflict as well. So that's just Mankato. There is so much more to talk about um, related to the Dakota War in memory. Um, another thing that comes to mind is, and this kind of gets into white victimhood, is uh, further out west from Mankato, there's a monument constructed for the good Indians that helped white settlers in the Dakota War, which is an interesting side story. Some Dakota people, you know, understood, you know, the moment they were living in and realized that, you know, these innocent, in their minds, white people, you know, 
needed assistance. And so they helped them escape. And so like white settlers after the fact used the story as a way to show that, you know, they were the innocent people, you know, the hostile Indians that attacked them were the enemies. So um, as we kind of bring this to a close, one of the things I always ask our guest is to help us contextualize the past with, you know, more modern ideas. And so if social media had existed in the 1860s and individuals had Instagram accounts or iPhones with good cameras, I'm kind of curious, what hashtags might they have used to describe the Dakota War? And what images might they have posted, both white settlers or the the Dakota, either one? You know, that's a really good exercise. Um, I really like that you do this because it just helps. It helped me think of this, you know, event a lot differently um, when you're thinking about space and place. And I think that a lot of that would be represented in their Instagram posts. Um, especially for the Dakota and kind of the transformation of their homeland um, from before the Dakota War and after. I think that for historical memory purposes, you know, their posts would focus on, you know, their survival and persistence. Um, One thing I didn't mention earlier was Mankato also hosts a powwow every year that's been in existence since the 1950s that offers the Mankato community and whoever else wants to drive in to see it, you know, Dakota culture and their survival. And the the whole powwow is commemorated for the Dakota 38. So I can just imagine, you know, these images of dances and, you know, the the dresses that they're wearing, the, um, the songs that they're singing, you know, these would be really important, you know, hashtags, especially the Dakota people, in the 19th century, when they're preparing for this execution, one thing that I forgot to mention was as the Dakota men are marched to the scaffold, the white settlers are hearing them singing what they called a death song. And this death song, which there's not really in any translation today that's been published, um, this death song was a chance for these 38 Dakota men to show their sovereignty over themselves and their bodies that they weren't accepting defeat, they were accepting their death. And so that song, I think, would be a really interesting Instagram post, a hashtag, you know, representing their acceptance of death. And I think yeah, I could even see it. it's like hashtag accepting death, not not defeat. Um, hashtag death song, you know, maybe something negative about the, the Indian agent um, in a hashtag. Yeah, because I I just think that those would be really important, you know, phrases to signify their existence. And they weren't people who, well, they are people, you know, a lot of white settlers in the 19th century did not consider them to be humans or modern people that they, you know, lived nearby. So I think that they're like using these phrases as hashtags could like employ a better understanding of their survival, their persistence, their humanity in the story. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. It's such an, an important event, and, and I think it helps us all to know a little bit more about it. So thank you so much, and I wish you luck as you finish your dissertation. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
Contextualizing the Past was created by Susan Stanfield, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Texas at El Paso, and is produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios.